Welcome to Brain and Vats. Today we are joined by Chris Ronelli, who is at the Free University of Amsterdam. Uh, Chris, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Yeah, sure. So the thought experiment is um, maybe not much of an experiment for most people because it's just uh, involves you being uh, at a zoo and imagining that you are looking at uh, what you take to be a zebra enclosure. So you're sort of looking uh, at the horse-shaped animals with black and white stripes, and you know, intuitively, you you believe that there's some zebras there, right? So that's what your visual experience suggests. Um, the trouble is that you know you can kind of imagine. Suppose your friend is a bit, uh, I don't know, kind of likes to push you, like you know, get you to think, and says like, well, you know, how do you know that those aren't cleverly disguised mules? And so the thought is that you don't know that they're not cleverly disguised mules. I mean, after all, you haven't you know, done any special checks. Uh, you haven't really gotten close up to them. Um, it's hard to see how just you know, standing in front of the enclosure, you can just tell or just see that they're not cleverly disguised mules. Um, but on the other hand, it seems like you do know that they're zebras. Um, but here's the thing, those two also seem uh, incompatible, right? So if the animal that you see really is a zebra, uh, that entails that it's not a cleverly disguised mule. Um, so it looks like we actually have a kind of paradox here, an inconsistent triad. So, uh, you know, you, it seems like you know that the animal is a zebra, is a zebra uh, but you don't know that it's not a cleverly disguised mule. But if you do know that it's a zebra, then it seems like you should be in a position to know that it's not a cleverly disguised mule. So it looks like they can all be true together. Um, yeah, so the question is, is um, this is just like sort of a pretty straightforward case of someone raising uh, what epistemologists call a skeptical hypothesis, uh, which is a kind of uh, error possibility um, which is incompatible with what you take yourself to know. And then, so you can kind of do this for lots of different beliefs. So I could say, you know, uh, you know how do you know right now that you're uh, sitting there uh, listening to me? Um, this, you know, this could all just be a, a pre-recording, right? Or uh, you could be, you know, asleep in your bed dreaming right now. Um, so that's, that's what a skeptical hypothesis is like. And uh, the, you know, trick is to see, well, you know, how can you, you know, take yourself to know what you think you know if you can't rule out these sorts of um, hypotheses. So it seems to be there's this tension between wanting to be skeptical about what we take at face value. In other words, there are certain things that are presented to us that may not be true. And we want to be able to ask the right kinds of questions to find out they're actually true. And there's another set of things that seem so obviously true that it would be improper to be uh, skeptical about them. So what, what are the kind of tools that we should be using uh, to work out when we should be skeptical and on what we should be skeptical about? Yeah, that's a really um, excellent uh, question. So I suppose like one thing uh, a person could start with is uh, just sort of like the body of common knowledge or common sense knowledge. So if someone raises an error possibility, which is just sort of immediately uh, or, or obviously uh, incompatible with common sense. That's that's at least some reason for being suspicious that uh, the claim is false. And by common sense, um, I mean things that you know. Well, most people sort of like reasonably take for take for granted. So, for example, that there's uh, physical objects, or that there's other people in the world, or um, that things don't sort of just vanish uh, mysteriously. So it seems reasonable just to, to you know, to, to, to presume that, you know, if someone raises an error possibility incompatible with common sense, then, then you ought to be suspicious of it. Um, another one would be if the, the error possibility they raise is sort of uh, like morally controversial, right? So something like, uh, I mean, well, to say the least, but like, uh, you know, something like a Holocaust denialist uh, like scenario, right? I mean, in that, in that sort of case, it, there's sort of like a moral risk of being wrong, right? So if you were to take that hypothesis seriously and really start to inquire and investigate into it, you'd sort of run the risk of 
morally uh, morally wronging um, certain you know certain uh, people, namely Jewish people. So uh, among others, so um, I would say, you know, thinking about whether the hypothesis puts pressure on common sense and also whether the hypothesis is sort of uh, morally controversial or morally suspect. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Um, I, I've never thought about that as a requirement um, on whether we should doubt skepticism, um, whether that skepticism has a moral component. I mean, when you use the Holocaust case, when you raise a Holocaust case, that's quite obvious. It seems like the burden of proof on the skeptic is much higher because of the moral component. But at the same time, it seems like we don't want morality to play a role in what's true. So how, how, do, you, how do you reconcile those? Yeah, that's, that's also a really good question. So, um, so the thought here is not, is not that um, if the claim is morally suspicious or if it you know, poses a moral risk, then it's likely to be false. It's more, it's more like thinking about which alternatives should we consider seriously. Right, so now we're kind of considering, you know, the requirements on being a kind of rational or at least a reasonable agent, and uh, and that's something that's really important to uh, at least you know most people. So the thought is is like, well, I d I don't really need to consider all possibilities of error in order for for me and my beliefs to to be reasonable. I just need to consider, you know, well, you know a certain subset of those uh, possibilities. So when you consider the, the uh, Holocaust denialist uh, hypothesis seriously, um, you're, well, I mean, not only are you being morally risky, but you're sort of opening yourself up to having to consider uh, many more uh, possibilities of error, right? So it won't be just that one, but now it'll be other types of conspiratorial hypotheses, uh, other even deeper, more systematic ways of being in error. So you're sort of jeopardizing uh, your rational agency uh, in general. So there is some pressure on your rationality there because now you'll, you know, sort of, you'll have to consider all these different scenarios seriously. And we sort of just need um, some kind of rule of thumb or some sort of test for considering uh, hypotheses seriously. And so the moral test uh, is, it's not really a test which, you know, delineates tr the true hypotheses from the false hypotheses. It's a test which de delineates, uh, delineates what you should consider seriously and what you shouldn't consider seriously. So does that rule out conspiracy theories generally? Um, as the sort of theories that we should take seriously? Um, no, actually. So, so I think it's sort of helpful here to distinguish between, at least starting off, so two types of uh, conspiracy theories or conspiracy hypotheses, rather. So one is sort of really local. So it could be something like, you know, maybe your local city mayor is, a, so the hypothesis is that your mayor is, a, you know, bribing, uh, the, the local media uh, to sort of publish uh, bad reports of, on his or her uh, competitors, right? So that's, that, that's a conspiracy hypothesis, political one. Um, and that's an instance of a local conspiracy hypothesis. So it just involves a really small subset of actors and it, it involves just one single event. However, there's also sort of global uh, conspiracy hypotheses. So this will be something like the Illuminati conspiracy uh, theory. So according to that theory or that hypothesis, um, there's a, you know, there's a group of actors uh, conspiring, you know, and, and these actors are apparently either um, like nefarious aliens or they're um, nefarious uh, rich people, um, or maybe even I've read, you know, some conspiracy, some Illuminati conspiracy theorists think of them as, um, you know, sort of influenced by like demons or, or, or something like that. And so they're sort of orchestrating every major political event worldwide. 
So their hands are kind of not just in, uh, you know, the sort of in the mayor's affairs, but in all, you know, all the different prime ministers and presidents across the world, uh, wars, uh, you know, major business mergers and so on and so forth. When it comes to local um, conspiracy theories, um, rationality really requires you to inquire and investigate uh, whether that hypothesis holds or not. And you know, that's the sort of thing investigative journalists uh, actually try to do. But when you think about these more general global conspiracy hypotheses, um, it seems to me that there's sort of a rational presumption that they're probably false. Right, so you don't really need to undertake uh, investigation or inquiry to sort of like get evidence to believe that it's false. Rather, uh, it's permissible for you just to rely on common knowledge and common sense and say, like, well, look, I mean, if that were true, uh, then I wouldn't. <laughs> then you know, all these things I know uh, would would actually be false, right? Like, so for, for example, if the Illuminati conspiracy. Uh, hypothesis were true, then uh, it would be false that I know that Joe Biden was democratically elected uh, to be uh, the most recent president of the United States, right? Because according to the Illuminati uh, conspiracy theory, uh, the Illuminati actually undemocratically orchestrated uh, such an event, right? So, um, so I would just say it just depends on what, what type of conspiracy theory it is, whether it's one of these more local ones or, or, or whether it's a, a global uh, conspiracy theory. So I wonder if we can capture this in two ways. The one is to say that he who alleges must prove. And the other one is that the bigger of a deal it is, the allegation that you're making, the more evidence you need. So if you're saying something in a very small scale, like, you know, I, I think the mayor might be involved in corrupt activities, well, then we require a certain amount of evidence um, and the person who alleges it must still prove it, um, but they don't need enormous amounts of evidence. If you make the claim that there um, are interdimensional beings uh, who are controlling the whole of reality, that seems like such an extraordinary claim, as you said, it would be the kind of thing that would uh, make so many other things false, that the amount of evidence we need to take it seriously needs to be in proportion to that. So I wonder if that's the kind of principle that we can use to adjudicate, you know, what are the kind of things that we should believe in. The other thing that I want to touch on is this question around the morality of the claim. So it seems like, as you say, in the Holocaust denier case, one way to explain that is without reference to morality to say, well, we have all of these personal accounts of people that survived the Holocaust. We have all of these historical records. Um, you know, we've got so much going for the hypothesis that there was a holocaust that led to six million jews being exterminated and on the other hand you have you know a very paltry amount of evidence from the deniers um and it seems that it is they have an evidence problem and their disbelief in it is also immoral in other words uh you know because there was so much suffering during the holocaust but i wonder about this case where let's say we think about someone being accused of a heinous crime and we want to make a denial of that. Well, it would seem that our denial of the heinous crime, uh, if we take morality into account, um, becomes more of a problem depending on how serious the offense was. So if someone was accused of murdering one child or murdering a thousand children, the thousand children case seems that much worse, and therefore it seems more immoral to deny it. But there's a tension with that in my prior claim about there being you know, he who alleges must prove and the more fantastical claim, the greater the amount of evidence. So to my mind, when someone alleges that someone has committed a really dastardly act, you know, and denying it would seem dastardly in and of itself, we might still think, well, hold on, uh, this is a big claim and I, I ought to weigh in the evidence before I accept it to be true. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting case. And so it'll depend. So, I mean, actually a lot of epistemologists uh, perhaps strikingly, uh, think that, you know, the requirements of morality tend to dominate. Um, so, you know, so if you are at risk of morally wronging someone by undertaking some kind of act, you know, e even if that's a certain type of inquiry, uh, or, or even if that means forming a certain uh, belief state, um, if you're at risk of morally wronging someone by doing that, then, um, 
it's better to try to avoid the moral wrongness, even, even if that means risking your rationality. However, some epistemologists are more on the sort of epistemic side and they say like, well, you know, you, you should really, I mean, rational agency is, is, is really what counts. So if there's ever, well, typically when there's such a conflict, uh, you really ought to go in favor of the direction of being a rational agent, which will mean respecting and following the evidence uh, wherever it leads. Yeah, so we have this principle, the, the, the sort of like the bigger uh, the claim than the more evidence you need in order to rationally believe it. Um, on the other hand, though, if you were to disbelieve it, you'd do something morally wrong. Then I guess I would sort of lean more towards the view that you should perhaps go towards uh, getting the evidence then, because, you know, disbelieving it, then you, you do something immoral. So this is still sort of in line with the idea that, um, you know, morality, um, not that it necessarily dominates, but that it typically dominates. So if we think about how we deal with criminal suspects, we take the view that you should presume that they are innocent and that the state bears an onus um, in proving their guilt. Um, and that especially in very serious cases, we want an enormous amount of evidence because there's consequences for that person. So what you have here is this, there's a moral schism because there's the rights of the accused and there's the rights of the victims. And it seems strange to me that the more alleged victims I add in, that that should change my belief states. So in other words, uh, let's say there's one murder victim and one person is going to get sentenced to death for doing it. You say, okay, well, the moral stakes are, are equivalent. Um, and so that's, you know, I should let the evidence guide me. But once I start to throw more and more alleged victims into the case, you say, well, there's so many victims at stake here. There's so much more moral reason to believe their story. Um, therefore, I, I ought to believe that this person is guilty. Um, as opposed to, as I say, he who alleges must prove. And what you're alleging here is, you know, this person has committed some kind of genocide um, and you need all that evidence for it. So, I mean, this kind of might play out in a couple of ways that are contemporary, one of which might be something like Me Too allegations. So, you know, if you think about a slogan like Believe All Woman, um, you have a situation where people say, you must believe the case. It is a serious case of some kind of sexual impropriety uh, and any denial from the, the accused should be um, scuffed off because it's, it's, it must be by nature an immoral denial and no, no good person will ever make a false allegation. And then you wind up in interesting situations where you have conflicting stories from two women. So uh, there's been a, uh, an HBO series that's come out on uh, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow and there is a conflict between um, Mia, Mia Farrow and uh, Woody Allen's uh, wife, Sun Yi. Sun Yi was raised by Mia Farrow. And they both have very different accounts of what Mia Farrow was like as a mother. Um, Sun Yi makes allegations that she was uh, an abusive mother while Mia denies it. So your sort of slogan of believe a woman doesn't work because you've got a contradiction between the two women and you've got a case where there's some moral impropriety that goes either way. So yeah, I, I wonder if, if the principles are doing the correct amount of work in this case, or whether our moral principle is really uh, confusing matters of truth. I want to I want to just sort of make it a little harder for you. So what I was going to make it easier. I'm, no, no, I want to I want to turn on the screws first, then I'll let Jason make it easy. What the move you've made is to sort of adjust between the moral and the evidence route. So you said, but if we're dealing with a situation where you've got thousands of surviving families testifying against this one person, well, we have very good reason to believe them. I'm not going to fight you on that. I think that's totally true because it's the evidence. Here's the two cases I want you to think about. The one is you've got one person who accuses another person of killing a child mm -hmm. versus one person who kills an, uh, accuses another person of killing a thousand children. Okay. So in other words, we've got the same amount of evidence. The claim is that because the, the crime itself is so much worse, it's a thousand children, the moral stakes change, and we now have greater reason to believe that this person actually performed a killing of a thousand people than in the case where the accusation was merely one. And that is directly at odds with the earlier uh, epistemic norm of saying, he who alleges must prove, and who he makes a, a great 
uh, allegation must produce more evidence. In this case, what you're saying is we need a lot less evidence because the moral stakes are so much higher. But I guess the thing I'm not I'm not follow I'm not following yet though is um, I mean so I don't mean that one shouldn't you know try to respect uh, the evidence or try to follow the evidence and, and undertake inquiry. Rather, the thought behind um, the sort of like moral norm here is just that what which hypotheses you consider relevant um, has to go through like sort of a moral filter, right? Um, but that doesn't that doesn't tell us, you know, um, whether or not the claims that you're, you know, considering are true or likely to be true. So it's not so yeah. So it's not really playing that kind of role when it comes to belief. So it's not going to like fix belief. It's more just about which sorts of scenarios uh, would it be responsible for you to consider seriously. So I would say, you know, in the case of um, you know, many, diff many different women who've ne never met each other and they all come forth and say, hey, you know, um, this person has been, you know, doing, uh, sex you know, offensive or sexually offensive uh, acts or, or uh, like testimony towards us. I mean, given, given the background knowledge that we all have that things like that sadly happen, um, it's not just that morally we ought to take that seriously, but also like rationally, we ought to take that seriously. Um, so then it, it passes through like two filters. It passes through the, the epistemic rationality filter and it also passes through the moral filter so that now it really is a consideration that we ought to take seriously. But from the fact that we ought to take it seriously isn't yet to say that, that there's a presumption in favor of, of believing uh, each and everyone's testimony. So that's still like an additional uh, step. That's an additional claim. And I suppose what might support that additional step um, would be something like a, a, a rational presumption norm for speaker testimony, right? So, um, you know, absent evidence to think that the person uh, is not telling the truth, right? So as long as, as, long as there's no positive evidence, which suggests that this person uh, speaks falsely, then uh, you are permitted to believe their testimony. That is, uh, that is the rational thing that you ought to do. That doesn't mean that the testimony is true. It just means that it would be rational for you to believe them. Um, and it also doesn't mean that further evidence couldn't come forth, which would undermine that belief. So it might be that, you know, initially what you ought to do um, you know, epistemically, but also morally is um, trust their testimony. Um, it could come to light that um, actually they, you know, you know, many of them are um, speaking falsely or, or the testimony is misleading. Um, but still that doesn't really put pressure on this presumption norm that, that um, you know, thinking about what rationality requires of you, well, it's, it's that you ought to, to, to take the testimony at face value unless there's positive evidence uh, that they're speaking falsely. So I have a different solution for you, Chris. Um, and I know it's not going to please Mark, but, uh, but, it's, but it, I think it's the solution that people are using. Um, and the solution is to say that we're going to split um, this, this uh, firm view that a single event has happened. So let's say, for example, in the Me Too movement, a woman comes forward and says that X harassed me. The approach to this, which I think a lot of people are taking, is to say, we immediately uh, believe you in the sense that we think that it is rational to do so and moral to do so and immoral not to. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that uh, we don't take, we don't question in a very serious manner and, and take very seriously the testimony of the accused. Um, because you could have an harassment that has happened without a harasser. Um, so you could have, for example, a rape that happens without a rapist. So you could have a woman who experiences a rape and does so legitimately, and it is a real rape, and it is traumatic and horrendous. But if you question the man, there might be so many misunderstandings along the way that he is unaware that he's done anything wrong. Now, I'm not saying this is the case in all cases. I'm not saying that all rapes are like this. I'm not saying that all harassment is like this. But it seems like in our, um, 
discovery and our process of discovering what is going on in the case, we can start with a presupposition like this, because what it does is it presumes the innocence of the accused, while at the same time taking the story of the victim very seriously. Yeah, so I mean, this is all still, this is all still broadly in line with the idea of when a possibility is considered relevant uh, is partly a function of, you know, the sort of like the moral risk and the moral stakes. So here in this case, we have, you know, the moral risk of harming uh, the potential, you know, the alleged victims, but we also have the potential moral risk of putting in jail someone who's, who's been falsely accused. And, and if not that, then kind of like ruining their career and, and et cetera. So there are like two sets of moral stakes here or two, two moral risks. So I guess one question is, is, you know, which, which one is weightier, right? And so I think that we probably won't be able to determine that a priori, we'll probably have to just look at cases, you know, individually one by one. So I'd like to turn to a, a different kind of topic. So we, we found that there are certain institutions that people have had a, a, a lot of trust in. So if we think about mainstream media, you know, most people felt that they could pick up their, their newspaper, they could read the New York Times, and they could say, you know, I'm pretty damn sure that the stuff in here is true. And we have found that there's been a big shift in this regard. So people have become more and more skeptical um, about mainstream sources. And we also have you know, the intersection of social media playing a role. So you have stories that can go quite viral. Um, some of those stories um, uh, turn out to be false. Some of them are salacious. And then you also have social media giants like Facebook and Twitter uh, fact-checking stories. Um, so putting a little notice up to sort of say, you know, um, you might want to look further into this. And then there's a concern about the fact-checking that the fact-checking is not neutrally done, that there isn't a fact of the matter, that there is some ideological consideration here. So what are the tools that people ought to be using to assess what they should believe when they're consuming consuming their media either from alternative sources or from mainstream sources? Well, I guess the first thing to realize is that, you know, whether it's mainstream or alternative media, um, there is at least some ideological framing, right? So what I mean by that is, um, you know, if you sort of like, open the the guardian or the new york times or rather you know put it you know in your web browser um even the stories that get selected uh by them is you know of course driven by a certain ideology namely what sorts of stories we ought to consider seriously which ones are worthy of investigation which ones are worthy of uh critical discussion so i would say you know even when it you know so as consumers of mainstream media, we ought to, you know, at least be aware that even the sources we go to routinely are still ideologically um, driven. Um, but to say that something is ideologically driven is not yet to highlight any uh, epistemological problem with it per se, because it could be that, well, you know, uh, they're right. That is, these stories that they are presenting to you are the ones that ought to be considered seriously. They are really the ones that are that are relevant um, with respect to to gaining truth and avoiding uh, falsity. Um, so you, you could think of mainstream media as a kind of fil relevance filter, right? So it's kind of like filtering out the stuff that is. Um, irrelevant and likely to lead us astray or to mislead us. That's one way of thinking about it. But of course, um, we also know that that's not the case. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, I don't mean, of course, something crazy like that um, mainstream media reports are mostly false. That's obviously not true. But what I mean is that certain stories, of course, will be omitted uh, because they're not considered seriously or, or because uh, or sorry, not, not because they're considered irrelevant, but just because they don't, they don't sort of fit the, the viewership that they're targeting, right? Um, and from the fact that they don't fit the viewership that they're, that, that they're targeting, um, it doesn't, that doesn't mean that the, the story they're omitting is false or misleading, right? So um, the problem with, 
you know, so mainstream media, but of course also alternative media, if that's the only media you consume is what's called coverage reliability. So basically that means, you know, even if, you know, whether you're sort of like a Fox News viewer or a connoisseur of The Guardian, um, in both cases, their coverage unreliable. So they're not just, they're just not covering, uh, you know, all the different uh, sources that could be covered, all the different topics that could be covered. Um, so in this way, their coverage unreliable. But from, from coverage unreliability, uh, it doesn't follow that what they do cover is false or misleading. So I think, yeah, it's just important to, to keep that distinction in mind, this kind of truth reliability versus this coverage uh, reliability. And so, you know, when we think about things like social media, uh, you know, one of the main problems with uh, social media is, is this coverage reliability and also the way in, the way in which coverage, uh, sorry, unreliability um, is facilitated. So it's really facilitated based on not just my preferences, but on what the algorithms predict my preferences are or will be. And it just needn't be the case uh, that my preferences map onto reality, right? So, I mean, I feel like this is a sort of uncontroversial truth for everyone, right? I mean, we, we you know, we can easily have preferences which just don't map on to the way things are, to the, the way things will be. Um, but as soon as you're sort of like newsfeed and the, the kind of media that you, uh, that you kind of get online, is really a function of your preferences or, or, your, or you know, the preferences that the, the, the algorithms are, are estimating. Um, now then we're moving from coverage unreliability to potential uh, truth unreliability, right? So, so I would say one of the dangers with you know, social media over something like traditional media is that with with sort of like traditional media, the, the main problem is something like coverage unreliability, but with social media, we, we also get um, not just coverage unreliability, uh, but truth, potentially truth unre unreliability out of that. So I just wanna make two points. Um, so the one is uh, from my capacity as an advertiser. So I run advertising on social media and I'm very much part of the problem um, so I, I run, some of my clients are political clients and we run adverts on a very particular ideological stance that we drive. Um, and one way of looking at that is that that's highly problematic. So um, it's going to lead to both coverage um, unreliability and potentially truth reliability, unreliability rather. Um, but there's another way to think about it, which is that we are not the only ones doing it. So um, there's a battle of ideas happening on social media. And so each side is, is providing both uh, coverage unreliability and perhaps truth unreliability. Their, their claims are marred by both of these aspects. But because you've got this confluence of competing advertisers and competing social media messages, it allows the person, the consumer of social media content to decide on what they think is the right, the right message. Um, so, so that's one way out of this problem. Uh, the second point I wanted to raise is there seems to have been this enormous push towards investigating the source of a claim. Um, so just as you said, uh, if, if you want to look at a claim, you ask whether it's made by The Guardian or Fox News. And so you see that The Guardian is more left-leaning and Fox News is more right-leaning. And you assume that that claim is rooted in some way, perhaps not assume with total certainty, but uh, with, with justification that that claim is rooted in their ideological stance and, and you take that from whence it comes. But that is very much against uh, the tradition of philosophers. Um, who believe that um, there's a certain type of fallacy that we should avoid called an ad hominem. So ad, an ad hominem is where you criticize uh, the arguer instead of the argument made. And I wonder whether investigating the source of a claim is uh, just in and of itself an ad, an ad hominem. 
Right. So here, I think the, 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 there's a straightforward answer, and it's no. So I mean, think of it like this, um, like sort of an instrument, right? So um, imagine I have, I don't know, let's say um, a gas, uh, 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 an oil gauge in my car, right? So the, the, oil, the oil gauge, you know, will say like, this is how much, you know, oil is in the car uh, right now when I look. Um, you know, it would, it would sort of be weird if someone, you know, challenged me and said like, well, you know, I mean, right, right now, uh, you know, it says, it says it's running low. And, and if I just thought it were totally irrelevant to sort of, to check the actual, uh, the actual gas, the, 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 the sorry, the actual, um, uh, the actual dipstick, right, going into the oil in the car, right? So, and I think, you can also think about this with perception. So if, you know, routinely, you know, I normally trust my vision, I trust my eyesight. Um, but if someone I trust says, well, hey, you know, maybe, you know, you, you say that that object in front of you is green, but it really just doesn't look green to me. It actually looks like a different color. And then someone else tells me, yeah, it, it, it doesn't look like the, the color. It doesn't look, it doesn't look green to me either, right? Uh, it looks red. It looks red to both of us. Then it would just be really odd if I were like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to question the source. I'm not going to question my vision here. So, um, if we think it's sort of, it, if we think it's sort of impermissible for me to say something like that in response to them, then I guess I would wonder why it's impermissible in the case of um, like like news sources. I think so. What the ad hominem fallacy is really about is that from the fact that the person, you know, says uh, that P, right, you, you know, even if you distrust this person, you can't sort of infer that not P. I mean, and likewise, you know, from the fact that you, you trust the person, from the fact that they said that P, you can't infer that P is true. And, and what I mean here is something like this, there's no sort of like logical deduction from A said that P to P and then also likewise to, to not P. Um, but that's still orthogonal to the issue of rational trust, right? So it, it could be that, you know, while, while it's true that just because the person I distrust said that P, that doesn't mean that P is false. It could still be rational for me, nevertheless, to withhold assent. You know, that is, I, I can suspend judgment on whether P is true, right? So that's a, that's like a different matter. So I wonder about other kinds of things where we're not talking about a thing where it's simple to go and to determine the facts of the matter. So for example, you know, to determine whether your eyes are faulty or not, you can go to an optician and they can tell you. I wonder about other kinds of disagreements um, where it seems harder for us to determine what the truth of the matter is. You know, Wittgenstein talks about these deep disagreements, um, these sort of things about the nature of reality, for example, where it's it's so hard for us to sort of reach a consensus about it because we disagree about the fundamentals. So you can imagine disagreements between those that believe in supernatural forces and those that don't, for example. Um, do you think that there's a way for us to adjudicate between these kind of deep disagreements? Is there is there a way for us to determine what the truth is? Uh, or do we just have to say we our views are so fundamentally different that we can no longer speak to each other on this topic. So cases like this sometimes push philosophers to become a certain kind of relativist. So not moral relativism and not truth relativ relativism, but epistemic relativism. So the idea is that, well, if there really is someone who has different fundamental epistemic principles uh, from you, then there's really two questions here rather than just one. So we initially take it that, you know, the, the one question is, is, well, who's being rational? Uh, is it me or is it them? The epistemic relativist says like, well, no, there's actually two. Namely, uh, am I being rational according to my fundamental epistemic principles? That is, do my beliefs align with uh, those norms? And likewise, um, with my uh, opponent, uh, does you know do their beliefs align with their epistemic norms? That is, these norms which conflict uh, with mine. So the epistemic relativist is going to say that 
in in those cases, it's at least possible that both people are being or both people are being rational. It just depends on whether or not their attitude really is recommended by their respective epistemic principles. So that's one way to go, epistemic relativism. Um, but I also think uh, that there's another way to go, which is non-relativistic. So this sort of looks at uh, whether both people are actually entitled to trust the same epistemic principles. So for example, if we go back to the person who you know, distrusts their uh, sensory experience um, you know, for just about every judgment that they form, um, you can say like, well, look, you know, if you do that, if you distrust perception, uh, you're gonna get few true and useful uh, beliefs. And um, this is the case even if they're right, right? So the idea is like kind of imagine a sort of um, uh, a decision uh, kind of theoretic or, or a, a decision a theoretic table where you imagine that on, on one side is, you know, trust perception and below that is to not trust perception. And then on top is like, well, perception is reliable. And beside that is perception is unreliable. Well, what's gonna come out as dominant there is to trust perception. Because when you trust perception and perception is reliable, you're gonna get lots of true uh, beliefs. But when perception is unreliable and you trust it, of course, you're gonna get few true beliefs. But likewise, when you don't trust perception and perception is reliable, you're gonna get few true beliefs. And so too, when perception is uh, unreliable and yet you still you know, don't trust perception, here too, you're just not gonna form very many beliefs. And then so you know, de facto, you're not gonna have many true beliefs either. So it seems like what survives um, is that you should trust perception in either case. That is, it's just the, the dominant outcome. So in those sorts of scenarios, I would say that you are just entitled uh, to trust uh, your, you know, you're just entitled to trust perception in this case. So I think a lot of people listening to this kind of language of what we ought to do when it comes to believing something someone says, um, most people associate the word ought to with the moral ought. So I should believe what they say because it has some moral consequence. But you although you do mean that sometimes you have another sense of ought here, um, some sort of epistemic ought. So I ought to believe this because it is the rational thing to do. And someone's going to say to you, but what do you mean by it's the rational thing to do? Now, you, what you, we've been doing in this discussion and a big part of what you've been doing is trying to give us an account of what epistemic rationality is. But I think what they're trying to ask there is, what are the characteristics in, like what, what, are the, what are the kind of criteria that such an account that you're providing needs to meet? Um, you know, what does it mean uh, that you ought to believe something if we take morality out of it? Yeah, so I would say the perhaps the orthodox um, sort of position um, in epistemology is to say that what fixes what you ought to believe um, in the, in the epistemic sense of what you ought to believe, that is, is your evidence. So the idea is something like belief aims at truth. That is, it's sort of the formal goal of belief to be true. That is, you know, it's sort of internal to belief that it's, you know, trying, it's at least trying to represent things as being as they really are. You know, belief doesn't always fulfill that function, but that is nevertheless, nevertheless its proper function. That's what it really tries to do. Um, so when we think about then the norms for belief, then we're also thinking about the norms that help us reach the goal of belief or to help belief along its way, to help it fulfill its function. And there, that's where evidence seems to be the best thing because, um, you know, evidence is, is, is that which indicates truth. And if, and if the goal of belief is to, well, you know, to represent things as they are, then the best way to fulfill your goal is to get evidence for it. So on the evidentialist view, uh, you know, the epistemic ought 
is governed by all and only your total evidence. Now, not everyone, uh, so, so, you know, some people think that belief is also governed by other norms. And I sort of hinted at that earlier on when I said, well, you know, sometimes, you know, there can be, uh, you know, there's a moral risk to having certain kinds of beliefs. And when there is, that puts some pressure on you uh, to change or to maintain your doxastic state. So for example, you know, maybe this is perhaps a, a really simple uh, case, but you know, when it comes to um, my own uh, my own family, say, um, it seems like you know there's some moral pressure on me to believe that their lives are worth living. Like, I mean, wouldn't I do wrong by them to to believe otherwise? Wouldn't I be sort of like flouting a like a family duty, you know, to do otherwise? Or think about you know your relationship with a close partner. You know, so um, if you find yourself in a disagreement with a skeptic about, say, the meaning, you know, the meaningfulness of their life or about whether they really love you, so perhaps they don't believe love exists, it seems to me like, you know, there's some moral risk in, in uh, suspending judgment there, right? It seems like, you know, morally, you know, it would be better if you believed it, right? That, that would be the, the, the right thing to do. Um, so if you adopt that sort of idea, then you think the moral can encroach on the epistemic, at least in the following sense, uh, it can also play a role in what you ought to believe. Um, but that doesn't mean that it plays a role in um, whether your belief is likely to be true. So we just have to sort of separate that out. That is the question of what, what should I believe from the question of, you know, um, is my belief likely to be true? So evidence, you know, speaks to the question, is my belief likely to be true? But from this more moralist or pragmatist uh, point of view, in order to really fix belief, we, we need to broaden, um, you know, we need to broaden the set and not consider only um, evidence, but also the moral and uh, pragmatic factors so it seems to me that there's certain kinds of beliefs that are resistance to counter evidence. So if we think about some religious belief, people say, well, I don't believe in a deity because I have good evidence for it. I believe in it because I was raised in this faith and it's a big part of my identity. I find it very comforting to believe that there is an afterlife. I don't like the idea that once I die, I will just cease to exist. So it, it brings me some sense of uh, joy to believe that I will live on. Um, or I like that there's a compelling narrative. So, you know, the sort of story that comes with my religious beliefs uh, is very exciting and it has this long history. And those are the reasons that I believe it, as opposed to, to evidence or, or aiming at the truth. Yeah, so, yeah, again, this is this, a sort of example where now it's not quite the, it's not quite the case that, you know, there's something morally at stake, although I guess for some really religious believers, there, there is something morally at stake, but rather there's something, you know, with respect to your well-being or your flourishing at stake. So the idea is that uh, by believing in the respective deity that it is, you're sort of like promoting your well-being or promoting your, your, your personal flourishing, right? So, you know, as you said, it's sort of like more comforting, you get more joy, it's exciting, and it aligns with sort of like your, I don't know, your, your community's values and, and so forth. And then so, of course, you know, people think, well, hang on, I mean, those sorts of factors, you know, shouldn't fix what you ought to believe, because then, you know, sort of, you can kind of willy-nilly, uh, you know, make it the case that, you know, too many people are believing as they ought to believe, right? Because a lot of people do believe the things that, you know, um, make them happier, or make them more joyful and so on. But I actually wonder though, whether or not these, the so whether or not what you epistemically ought to believe and whether or not it's permissible for you to believe that, you know, say believe that P or in this case that there's a deity uh, just because it, 
promotes your well-being really have to be at odds because you know in epistemology we take truth um we take truth to be valuable and there's this question about well what kind of value is it i mean so if truth is merely epistemically valuable um then that hasn't really told us you know in virtue of what makes it valuable i mean i could say something like you know making a move that is a checkmate in chess um is is chess valuable but i haven't really said given you any reason to like really desire um uh you know getting checkmates in chess right so i haven't really explained what it is about that that makes it valuable and you might have the same the same thought for uh for truth and so some some epistemologists say that well at you know the reason why truth is is valuable is not just because it is defined as the 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 epistemically valuable but because it actually adds to the person's uh well-being or it like promotes their flourishing that is you couldn't really live a good life uh without having true beliefs um that's actually a controversial view but it's sort of like one way of spelling out what makes truth valuable is that it makes you eudaimonically um, better off. That is, it promotes your flourishing. So if you thought about it that way, then the idea that uh, other kinds of well, you know, factors that go into well-being, like your comfort and your joy and your happiness, and you know, excited, it's being exciting and conforming to your community's values. Uh, then it needn't be so odd anymore that those sorts of factors might contribute to what you ought to believe as well. And, and so the reason why I say that is because um, when we think about, you know, what we ought to do, we're considering like, well, what are the valuable things that we're, that we want to promote? And if what, if what ultimately makes even truth, the thing that one of the things that we ought to promote is, is because of our flourishing, uh, then even then, then the epistemic ought itself, uh, you know, kind of reduces to promoting, uh, you know, promoting about, you know, promoting our flourishing or promoting our well-being. Um, so I would say, so, so so that's one way of thinking about it. But um, it does still skirt over, you know, the issue that, you know, obviously. Um, you know, if I if I believe in sort of like the flying spaghetti monster, I mean that just seems irrational, right? Even if it makes me uh, well off or like really happy, and um, so it could be that you, again, um, you know, so it could be that well, you have to think about okay, well, which one is going to promote my my flourishing more, <laughs> right? So is it going to be believing truly and in that case that means you know believing that there is no such flying spaghetti monster uh or is it going to be believing that there is a flying spaghetti monster so it might be that sometimes you sacrifice truth in order to promote your promote your well-being um but of course like you know many philosophers just find that totally insane i mean because the one i mean at least one of the goals of philosophical inquiry seems to be to get to the truth, right? I mean, no matter how, you know, no matter how, how bad the truth is or how badly it makes you feel, for example. Well, Chris, I want to say thank you very much for a lively conversation. We've covered all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful ground. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's been great having you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been great.